City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Production A very warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Now in their 25th year, they are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to explore with the panelists the realities of working in the theatre. Today we have the production seminar and it is devoted to the Broadway show The Civil War. We will follow the creation of the play from its inception through opening night and subsequent promotions that making, makes it possible for the show to be brought to the public. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairwoman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing, and we hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. But now, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, President of the American Theatre Wing, Roy A. Sumlio. Roy, would you please start this? Thank you, Isabel. Uh, the idea uh, that Isabel articulated is exactly, I think, what's most productive. We'll take the Civil War, we'll take it from its initial idea all the way through uh, how it got onto the stage, its various workshops, its out-of-town tryout through New York, and, uh, and we'll learn how it's uh, marketed and up to today's television commercial. And to do that, we have a very, all the key people of the Civil War with us. On my far right is Pierre Cossette with producers. Pierre is a television producer who's now had, I guess, at least three shows on Broadway, starting with Will Rogers' Follies, Scarlet Pimpernel, and now the big hit Civil War. Next to him is Norman Zager. Norman is a uh, marketing public relations specialist. He does the press for the Civil War. On my right is Gary Gunnis. Gary is the executive vice president of Pace Theatricals. Uh, he's the executive producer and he has all the day-to-day -day problems of getting a show on. Uh, immediately to my left is Frank Wildhorn. Frank, uh, in um, hockey terms, has, uh, uh, has now has, has done the hat trick. He has three shows currently running on Broadway and uh, he'll tell you more about them. But uh, next to him is Jack Murphy who is the lyricist of the Civil War, also a composer in his own right, and a frequent collaborator with Frank Wildhorn. And at the far end is Scott Zeiger. Scott is president of Pace Theatricals. He's acknowledged as the key expert at marketing. He's also uh, extremely knowledgeable and an expert at taking shows on the road because that's principally what Pace had done before they got deep into Broadway. So to find out what happened and how we got to Civil War, Let's start with at the very beginning, and I guess the genesis is with Frank Wildhorn, who was the original creator. Okay, um, the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas is a, kind of a home away from home for me. I'm an associate artist there, along with Edward Albee and Robert Wilson, and it was the birthplace of Jekyll and Hyde in 1990. I wrote most of Scarlet Pimpernel while I was there, as well as a show called Svengali. 
And uh, a couple years ago was the 50th anniversary of the Alley Theater. And Gregory Boyd, who is the book writer and the collaborator with Jack and I on the Civil War, asked me if I would do a piece for the anniversary of the Alley Theater. And instead of a gothic or a sexy melodrama, we decided we would like to do something more Americana. And Greg is a Civil War buff, as is Jack. And the idea came, how about let's do something on the Civil War. But we didn't want to do Gone with the Wind or a Shenandoah, kind of a fictional soap opera of the Civil War. We really wanted to do something that was more earthy, more real, more honest. And we started doing our research. And the letters and the diaries that we led read of the people who lived during those years led us to our first major inspiration, which was those, that material. And if you read that stuff, it's more dramatic and more theatrical than any screenwriter can make up. So based on that and a bunch of trips to battlefields, Gettysburg, Antietam, Vicksburg, we started writing. Um, and out of it came a cycle of songs and we used the, the, the material of the diaries and the letters to link the material together. And that's how the process really began. Um, I like to try to be a little bit of a bridge between the music industry and the theater industry. So very early on in the process, uh, Atlantic Records came on and um, committed to doing these recordings that we've had out now. And we brought together actors like James Garner and Danny Glover and Ellen Burstyn. Dr. Maya Angelou was the voice of slavery and 30 acts from around the world, from Hootie and the Blowfish to Dr. John, from Trisha Yearwood to Amy Grant, Patti LaBelle, B.B. Winans, and the album was born. Can I interrupt you just for a moment? Sure. At this point, had you, uh, did you have theatrical producers involved? Had Pierre or Scott, anybody else been involved? Yes, you very know, early how on. They, how, did they, how, did they work? how did you work in to this early process? Well, uh, Kathleen Raitt called me one day and uh, she said that she had a couple of projects that she thought I would be interested in. And I found out all about them. And they have been, you know, this is not an easy thing to bring in because it's so different. So it was uh, shopped around and, and uh, I saw a golden opportunity. I read it and I heard the music. I said, this is terrific. And that's how I got into it. And I started doing readings and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And from Little Acorns grew. And then we, uh, we were going to go on tour first. And then we did. And then the alley. We went to the alley first in New Haven, and uh, that's how I got involved, and I'm very proud of it. When did Pace get become involved? Well, um, we're the producers of Jekyll and Hyde, so we've had a long uh, collaborative, positive relationship with, with Frank Wildhorn and his music. And uh, early in the process, as he was composing these tunes, uh, Frank uh, came to our office and uh, sat down at the piano in our conference room and banged out a couple of anthems uh, for, for Gary and myself, and we were immediately drawn to the material. Um, and this was very early on in the Jekyll and Hyde process, too. Uh, it was just as the show was really getting going. And uh, we hadn't given a lot of you know, foresight to the next Wild Horn musical while we're still doing the first. We were re uh, absolutely drawn to the material, and, and uh, I, I think at that time Pierre had already um, sort of gotten on board, or was prepared to get on board, and, uh, and was in the process of planning the first staged reading, or, you know, uh, workshop reading. And uh, Gary and I um, uh, stayed very close to the material. Uh, we were marketing and promoting and producing Jekyll and Hyde at the time, but we... Uh, we came to that first reading that Pierre had staged, and 
and from that minute forward, uh, we negotiated a, an equal collaborative collaborative part with with Pierre and Frank as a as a producer. Um, it was. What is pace? What is pace? What is pace? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pace uh, produces uh, new intellectual properties on Broadway, such as Jekyll and Hyde. We were the lead producer of that, and. Uh, the Who's Tommy several years back. We produce revivals on Broadway. Um, we produce national touring companies that play throughout the United States. Uh, we operate Broadway subscription series in 38 markets in North America. Uh, we have some real estate interests both in the United States and in England. And we're part of a larger live entertainment company called SFX, which is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ, which does everything from rock concerts to motorsports events. Now, Gary, you came into it. You came into the picture at the same time. Did that, were you uh, putting uh, figures on paper at that point? Uh, did anybody care about how much it was going to cost in these early <laughs> stages? We still don't. <laughs> well, we always care what it's going to cost, of course, because this is commercial theater that we're doing. Um, but I think the project grew organically. Frank had a, a very unique plan and picture in his mind of what this piece would be. And we spent a lot of time trying to avoid the money discussion so that it could take its own wing, become what it's going to become, and then find the way to produce it in a way that would be economical and conservative while still letting everything flower. Well, who decided to do what, what, how the first production was going to happen in, 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 at the alley? Uh, you, that was, was that the first, or did you do uh, well, uh, workshops? Pierre's, Pierre's workshops and readings were really the first productions under the auspices of a guy named Nick Corley. And then when we went to the alley, it was more of a collaboration between Nick and Gregory Boyd with Jerry Zachs uh, being kind of the consultant. And then when we left the alley, Jerry then moved up and became the official director of the piece. I think we should explain what workshops are, how do they work, and since they all work differently, uh, how, did yours, how did your workshops go? Who would... Well, um... I don't know if you'd characterize the Alley production as a workshop. We characterize it more as a, a regional theater development production uh, because uh, typically a, a workshop is a, is a low-cost um, opportunity for the producers to see the show and the creators to see the show on mm -hmm. its feet, typically in a, in a, you know, in a black box or in a, in a rehearsal room. Uh, the rehearsal room uh, uh, provided for um, Pierre the opportunity to do the, the readings, which were basically the music performed live. But the first fully realized production where there was two acts, a beginning, a middle, and an end, was at the Alley Theater. And that, that was a fully realized production with set costumes, lights, and so forth. And that was really a negotiation between uh, um, the Alley and the commercial producers, led by Gary Gunnis, to provide what we call enhancement money to the regional theater to give it the uh, necessary funding that commercial producers such as ourselves can see the show in its full glory. And the great thing about doing something like that is that over a period of weeks, 50,000 people get to see the show. And so you really get to gauge the audience and learn from the audience and communicate with the audience. And in fact, at the alley, we would do three or four performances a week. We would do talkbacks and actually get their opinions and get their feedback. Did you also already have the uh, uh, recordings out, Atlantic recordings out? The first recording had, had come out, yes, the had, Nashville sessions, yes. Had come out before you uh, even opened. Mm -hmm. Which is what we did with yeah. Jekyll and Hyde as well. 
Well, you seem to be establishing a formula, which is highly successful, obviously, and it's kind of convenient that you, your day job, as it were, is at Atlantic. Well, I believe very much it's great to have the people come out of the theater humming the tunes. I think it's better if they go in the theater humming the tunes. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that only the record business and their machinery can reach that many people that fast. And the fact that they can do that, those albums then become calling cards for the shows. Certainly, if, you know, from a historical perspective, the Jekyll and Hyde, the songs This Is The Moment and Someone Like You, and the national and international exposure that they had over the years was a wonderful way to keep the music out in the consciousness of the people. And uh, I thought that worked great. And thank God for Atlantic Records and the support that they've given us that they uh, are committed to doing this. And, and now we actually have a label, uh, Time Warner. You know, Atlantic Records is part of Time Warner, which is the largest communication company in the world. And our little label, Atlantic Theater, is their label dedicated to uh, the promotion and, and uh, encouragement of a new American theater works. Well, I think one of the advantages is that uh, you and Jack have written music that uh, people can sing and recognize the, uh, the second time they hear it, as opposed to some of the musicals which are being done, which don't have that same kind of... Uh, uh, people can't retain right. melodies to it. Well, Roy, I'd be the first to tell you, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm a sophisticated theater goer. I'm more of a man of the people. And when I write something, I always feel if it moves me and I get excited by it, that it'll move most people. And that's kind of been just following the heart and the way to do it for me. Well, I think it's probably the fundamental of the success of theater is that if you're dealing with something, that, if you're honest about it, then I think it, people will be receptive to that. I'm, I missed a beat from the writing to the option to the production. How much time did that take? Can you well, give from me their writing? Early on. From well, the writing? You I, said I started writing. Well, when, when I saw this writing, it was, uh, it was not fully developed. It was practically developed, the idea, and there was some writing, and the songs had been uh, completed, uh, uh, not all of them, but most of them. Is that and your house? Yeah, I my house. And, 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 and I house. saw this thing, and I'm very, I'm very, very, very proud of this show. Especially the fact that I was the first guy to write out a check and say, I want this. Mm -hmm. And that was, was that started the choo-choo rolling. Was that an option on the show? Was that well, no, it was, a, yeah, it, was a, it was an option to... Uh, produce the show. Yeah, to produce okay. the show. And, uh, and then uh, you have to, when you do that, you have to put all the items together, the capitalization, and it starts going and going and going and going. And then you, now it's at the St. James Theater. How it long all did starts that take? Well, that took about two years, but it all starts, uh, you, know, you have a waste wastebasket, basket, a telephone, and a desk, mm -hmm. and you go. Now, there's been three years before that of hard work and conceiving of this, which they did, writing which they did, the lyrics which they did, and it's, uh, it's a magnificent piece that I think will be around for many, many years. And uh, two years for me, maybe three years for them, you add all that on, that's five years, mm -hmm. and that's how much time it takes. Norman, when did you start uh, promoting the show? Uh, I joined uh, the show at the Alley Theater and saw the show in its last weeks there and uh, basically began work thereafter. Um, part of it was knowing, finding out where the show would go artistically, which is where the marketing and press all has to be integral to the show. You don't impose it, so it, it, it evolves up from the piece itself. So it was interesting to follow and work with Frank Walthorn and Jerry Zaks and learn Jack, where the show was going, so how to position it, what was it, was our first challenge. How do we, how do we position this unique piece? Because it is an unconventional 
book. It's not a traditional musical in that sense. It's a thematic musical. So our first effort was to get a handle on its theme, develop the press materials, and then begin and make sure that we were representing season announcements, et cetera. Well, there were a lot of, did it undergo many changes, Jack? Did you have a lot of uh, rewrites or? Yeah. Um, <coughs> um, yes, I did. <laughs> the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> New songs or just or new lyrics? New songs, new lyrics. Uh, when, when Jerry Zachs, for example, became involved, um, he would, you know, he would look at the piece and he would point out things, and we were missing a beat here, we were duplicating a beat here, uh, um, you know, sort of to to weed out the redundancies, to to uh, sort of contextualize things better, to set up things better. Um, he kind of would he would point us in that way and, and say you know look this we need to we need to contextualize the opening better we don't understand what's happening and once be, having been set down that path you generally start looking at it yourself in in those kind of terms you know and so you start saying oh well wait and let me change this and let me change that and the the good news about it is that it's um, the, the theater is just a, such a collaborative effort that um, there's always an idea. There's al the rate of ideas is always there. There's always someone to say, to prod, to poke, to urge, to, you know. Uh, in a positive sense. In a very positive, yes, in a very positive sense. Um, this was a very positive experience f for me, at least. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think for everybody. It's a very positive experience because of that, because of everyone being interested in the work and not ancillary things you know. oh I'm, I'm not so clear on, uh, on exactly how it grew the first production first time it was on its feet was at the alley and did you then subsequently do workshops uh, or was the, the early readings were was what we, yeah, we had three or four I forget early readings yeah. in which we brought you know what is this? That's a lot of people. A lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people with money. A lot of people with a lot of with marketing expertise. Try to get everybody on board and get. Now, when we went to the uh, when we went to the alley, uh, we Pace and Cosette, and we, we put money on top of what they paid us. And this is a nonprofit thing down there. And uh, that's when it was in front of an audience, 900 people a night. We did it for four weeks. And that's where Jerry Zachs came in. The choo-choo really started rolling. Everybody was excited about this show. Then we booked New Haven for four weeks. Now, we had a, a road company down in Houston. But by the time we got to New Haven, we had a fully blown Broadway show because we moved right from New Haven right into Broadway. So we had about four weeks to, to learn and change and do. And that was it. Alley Theater in Houston, New Haven, and New York. Well, that's not so in others. That's almost the old-fashioned way of doing music. It is. Where you tried it out. It uh, is. When I had the Will Rogers Follies, uh, I thought that I thought, well, what do you need? Break either the show works or it doesn't. And uh, I found out that uh, we'd have been much better off if we'd have taken a few weeks out of town. Well, well let's look at the elements, though. At what point did you uh, orchestrate the show? You know, what, did you have full orchestrations in? in Houston? We did. We had full size orchestrations in, in Houston, but for the only for the size band that we had there, which was, I think, an eight or nine, nine band. Nine. And, now, you and now we have 14 at the St. James, and so it was reorchestrated for Broadway. There's always that moment. I know that everybody, the first time you hear the uh, full orchestration, you had that happen to you, I guess, twice because you had it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's very exciting. Oh, it's a great Remember moment. Remember that day? Yeah, sure. Everybody, always, in every musical, I think everybody remembers the first time. I have a very fond memory. I'll impose. I know um, 
I was uh, one of the producers of uh, the last show that Richard Rodgers did. And I was sitting with him the first time to hear the, the music. That's perfect. I remember Mama Ann maybe he had some premonition that that was going to be his last show. But he just rose. It was just so beautiful to hear the work that he had created on the piano, as you do. Suddenly, here was a full-fleshed orchestra playing, and then we had 25 people in that wow. orchestra. But uh, that's the great moment, I think. The first time we heard the uh, orchestrations, Frank was there, and it was for the recording. And we had a lot of musicians. We had 35 musicians. And the downbeat came on the first number, and all you could see was teeth <laughs> from Wild Art. For the next three hours, it's just nothing but teeth. Right, and, and everybody in the cast and the singers, you're so lifted by that. Because up until that time, you've had a, you know, a little piano off in a corner somewhere, and that's it. It's a, both from a, a marketing perspective, but also an artistic process, one of the key things and that's unique to Frank Wildhorn's musicals is that the work on the album is as much an artistic evolution for the final, ultimate piece as are the workshops. What I mean, Frank can speak on rather than me presume, but he ha gets a chance to work. Some of the actors who are ultimately in the Broadway production have been with this show since the early demo sessions and the album grew with it. But Frank and Jack and had a chance to hear their music interpreted, had it orchestrated well before the first public performance. And the album and in other projects I've worked on can be an, an enormous creative tool as important to the ultimate <coughs> evolution of the show as a workshop. And, and Frank probably should speak on that because it's, it's what's new in the 90s, well, I think. It's as no, much no, a part of producing now as You're right. Else. We, we talked a little bit before about how the album is a business tool for the show and gets the music out there, but just as important as a creative tool. Because for me, at least, it's my first workshop. And it's, it's the first time I get to be in the studio with artists, with my collaborators, and have the time away from the public get to make mistakes, write songs, rewrite songs, <laughs> reorchestrate. And a lot of the work that we do in the studio in making these records, because they are theatrical records, ends up being another workshop of the show. And it's a great tool to have. Yeah. Well, you speak of workshops. You're, you're a creative workshops, and that's right. what they did. Mm -hmm. uh, you alluded to the typical workshop a while back. Often we know that, that we call them workshops, but they're really uh, small backers auditions when we invite them in. That didn't seem to be, except at the very beginning, you didn't seem to, that wasn't your thrust. Yours was really a creative no. process. The thrust was for us to see what uh, we had there and to pick up on the enthusiasm from the audience. It wasn't a backers audition. We didn't set up there and say, this is for you to put money into. Uh, but it's, uh, it was very, very beneficial. We want to find out how you did get the money, so maybe we should. Well, I got, I got the money by, uh, uh, going to high-rolling people. There's one of them right there. And there's another right here. Yeah, there's another one right here. And between the two of us, we put up uh, two-thirds of the money. And then we had, we had investors in addition to that. Well, I think me, and the producers became part of the production, and they put in money. Do you too. get money in advance of, for the CDs from the music publisher? Yes. How do you choose that? How does, the, how does that come about? Is there somebody said this? The, company will pay us more than that company and we believe well, in them? Well, at the same time that we are making the relationships that we have with our producers, uh, I bring the project to the record company and I submit a budget for the first recordings. Mm -hmm. And they greenlight it <laughs> and that gave us the opportunity to do that. Now Frank comes in and says, I just made a deal with the record label. We're going to have a million dollars to do this thing. 
I said, forget the record. Tell them to bring a million dollars over here and we'll do the show. Well, I, I, would, I think we should understand now. How did, uh, someone had to decide that it needed six, eight, nine, ten, whatever it costs to do it. At what, and that, I presume, is your responsibility. Well, in large part, in association with the, the whole producing right. team. Yeah. We all what was on Gary. How much money do we have to capitalize That's this right. for? We'd have to wait for him, and he's the best in the business. Right. So what, what did you cap, uh, capitalize it at? Um, $7 million was the capitalization. And, um, did that include uh, everything from the uh, enhancement money? Yes, that included um, uh, ultimately the, the developmental package of, of activities that went on. It, it included, in retrospect, covering the uh, early readings that were done uh, as, as the development of the piece. It covered the enhancement monies that we paid to uh, the alley for what happened there. Um, and the attendant costs that we had related to enhancing the alley um, ourselves. You know, flying down there, uh, entering into transactions with people like, like Jerry's Axe to come in. Um, and then it also included the normal costs of mounting the show from square one, which is what we did after the alley production had concluded. It closed in November. We opened our out of town tryout in New Haven in uh, February. There was new scenery that, uh, for New yes. Haven? All new um, scenery? Yeah, well, yes. Physically, yes. Conceptually, it was very much the same. Uh, we discovered that the creative team initially assembled for the alley hit what we felt were home runs in most departments. And so most of what we have on Broadway now is an evolution of original decisions made then. Um, conceptual changes were, were fewer than we expected they might be. I mean, we started with the music, and our mantra then was, don't get in the way of the music, let it speak. And, and we kind of flowed from there. And the, the music still does speak, and we're very proud of that. That's well, let's take the flow. You capitalized it at seven million dollars, and then you got. And when you find you, you decided to go to New Haven. I guess again a joint decision amongst the producers and uh, creators. Mm -hmm. right. So you're in New Haven for four weeks. That can be a pricey uh, operation because if you're setting it up. We you know you're taking it down, coming back in. Was it uh, profitable to play? Uh, financially profitable? Financially play? profitable, not at all. Yeah. Um, it probably added three quarters of a million dollars to our overall expenditure to go there. But it was the best possible insurance policy to buy, is to see our final Broadway thing responded to by audiences. And, and the resonance of being in New Haven on stage at the Schubert with a creaking wooden floor. And just uh, one of those readings was the uh, director of this uh, Schubert Theater in New Haven. What was her name? Carolyn Worth. Carolyn Worth. And she absolutely went bananas. She called us, I've got to have this show, I've got to have this show for New Haven, it's going to be the first brand new, on and on and on and on. So we were thinking about going away quietly somewhere, and we did go to New Haven, we were very, very happy we did. But that's how those things, you know, you start with the readings. Did, and, you, uh, did you find being in New Haven in, uh, that you had too many people from New York coming and looking over we your We were shoulders afraid of that, but I don't think it happened. Mm -hmm. That's been an often I a think concern. it was very wise going yeah. out of town for that, yeah. and having that well, run. And it's yeah. very important. Yeah. Oh, it was a very positive experience in, mm. in every, everywhere. Now, the, the Alley Theater taught us other things, too, before New Haven. Uh, when we played the Alley, we really uh, were under the direction of Nick Corley. Uh, while Jerry was a, a production consultant, he was not the director. He, seeing it on his feet in, in Houston, opted to come on board as our full-blown director, and we're thrilled and proud, and we think that was integral. But along with him came a new lighting designer for Broadway. Along with him came a new costume designer for Broadway. And along with him came a new um, choreographer for Broadway. So while Gary tells you it was very much the same in Houston, 
uh, the, the actual finished product on the stage at the St. James is different in very many ways. Yeah. Who know? made the choices for the choreographer? And the well, it was a collaborative effort, but certainly once you anoint uh, uh, a, a substantial director such as Mr. Zacks, um, those decisions are driven by him and approved by the authors and ultimately contracted by the producers. And, and the Broadway house, did you, did you have a, a concept of where, the kind of house it had to go into or were you forced into uh, what was available? Or did I you, think we were forced you, into the nicest theater on Broadway. Turns out to be, <laughs> I can say, hey, it turns listen, out to that be. Was, uh, that was a real coup. Right, it does There's eight shows backed up for the St. James Theater mm -hmm. because of its capacity and its location, and uh, we got that. I think it's the ideal theater for your production. It's beautiful. Really it's a wonderful. Yes. At the, at the capacity. I think, I think that great. in today's environment, um, being a, it's a supply and demand issue, and uh, the demand is much greater than the supply for venues. Uh, and we, um, Pace Theatrical Group, has a strategic relationship with Jujamson, uh, which owns five theaters on Broadway. So we were able to uh, integrate um, the Jujamson organization into our process early. It was actually through them that we were introduced to Jerry Zacks. And um, they are actually a, a, a principal partner of ours in this production and they made available to us their flagship venue, so we couldn't be happier. No, you should be. It's, it's, uh, I think it works wonderfully in the theater. Tell me, uh, who decided, or have you decided, who is your audience? Who are you going to target now to, uh, to see the show, apart from the normal Broadway people who will flock to it? Right. From 8 to 80. I mean, it's, it's the widest demographics that we could possibly it's enormous have. enormous the demographics on this thing. And we uh, have school kids come in, and they absolutely flip out over it. And we have veterans groups that come yeah. in. You know, it's really... But uh, now, I, I don't you have to take that into consideration? If you're talking about marketing, which has become an important part of the show and the theater, you have to know who you're selling it to, to target that group. How do you decide on that, Roy's question? Well, well I think that um, we are blessed with a musical score that speaks to um, everybody. Uh, I think that the, uh, the music is accessible to the, uh, the mass general population that listens to the radio or buy CDs at the local music store on the corner. Uh, the music that Frank writes uh, can comfortably be played on radio stations, whether they be country or pop or R&B today. So, you know, being that is the, uh, the foundation of our show, it gives us a very broad opportunity. So, uh, for example, if you're going to take one medium like radio commercials, which are, you know, traditionally used to help sell Broadway musicals, we have a score where we can comfortably play that commercial with excerpts from the score on various genres of radio stations, not just news talk, which is the traditional old school. We can be on top 40 radio stations. We be, can be on country radio stations. We can be on rhythm and blues radio stations and have different musical excerpts for each segment of that group. We have a, a story that um, is you know, of great interest to the general public. The Civil War is a broad interest. And what we've done uh, is, is kind of focused it somewhat. We have a, a patriotic logo with um, the American flag intertwined. We have a, a television commercial, which we think is our primary tool, which I know you wanted to talk about, which uh, speaks to all demographics. It's romantic, it's artful, it's beautiful, it's patriotic. 
uh, it's anthem-like, uh, it, uh, it, it draws the audience. So um, I guess the, the simplest answer is who is our audience? Our audience is everyone, and that gives us an opportunity to broadcast, not to narrowcast, but to broadcast. And we can comfortably run a commercial, a television commercial, on the 11 o'clock news here in New York, which reaches a wide audience with a high rating and a broad demographic, and we know that our commercial message will speak to everybody watching. Whereas if you have a very special play or a very special musical that speaks to a smaller audience, you can fine tune where that message goes. So, Does that come under advertising, marketing, publicity? Where do you, where do you draw I think the, the line? The way we there? characterize things is uh, marketing. And under marketing is paid advertising, trade advertising, promotions, publicity, public relations, school appearances are all under the auspices of marketing, group sales. Anything that drives the audience, I think, falls under that category. Someone developed for me the, the, what you're doing with the schools or what you intend to do with the schools because that seems to be a, it's wonderful because if you get young people in the theater, it'll help the next five shows you're going to do. And, uh, uh, and this seems to be a perfect show to bring students to. What are you doing about getting the students uh, interested in this? Or what do you plan to do? Um, well, uh, as, as Frank just said, it speaks to people 88 to 80. Uh, we didn't know that till we saw the show on its feet. And we really didn't know it till the second or third week of previews on Broadway. We didn't even know it in New Haven that third graders can comfortably come in the theater and have as good a time as their parents. Um, and uh, so having that knowledge is great, you know, and that gives us an opportunity to target even a wider uh, uh, academic audience. Uh, we are uh, deeply in the evolution of a sophisticated study guide, one that speaks on, the, on the, the grade school level and on the high school level. Uh, that study guide will be published and will be available to teachers and so forth. Uh, we have um, aggressively sought out all the teachers to come in and see the show right away. You know, um, fortunately for us, we are close to the award season, uh, including the Tony Awards, but unfortunately we're at the end of the school year. So whatever general enthusiasm we can get from the, from the schools in the, in, in the New York area, uh, it's difficult to get them into the theater now because they're all winding down. But we're getting um, the educators in now to plan their groups for the fall. And we have a, a sophisticated education program. Norman, you want to talk about what Amy is doing for us? Or? Yeah, it will also it'll be an integrated program so that there will be classroom resources for before and or after the performance, discussion points, uh, launching, dis launching essays, et cetera. In the theater, we will develop a, a, a full-blown program that will involve Q&A sessions with the various members of the company, be it production or, or performance. Um, and uh, we may go, we're trying to go a step further and make that an interactive so that there are, if students are interested in performance, we'll have a chance to in interact with, with actors in simulated uh, dramatic exercises, et cetera, and we'll bring them actually onto the stage. We'll have an electrician talk about what he does and do a demonstration of a very light or a cue. So we will focus these in, in a major session so that there's a, a wide, uh, a wide view of what the various aspects are. The sure. American Theatre Wing, I think we're going to take advantage of what you're doing because it's a logical tie-in between our introduction to Broadway and our theatre and schools programs. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we do bring uh, young people in this, into Broadway shows and I, it's a perfect show for them, them to come well, see. Let's face it, the, the topic is, part, is, 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 is taught in 
from grade school through senior high school, American history. So we have that advantage to our. Well, you've just given us the opportunity to ask you to bring some of your people into the public schools that we would love to, and and we'll do that. Because we found that that nothing is better than well, nothing's better than to develop an audience by having uh, just, not just performers, but directors and casting directors and the like. Which uh, gets me to a question. Um, and ca how did you cast this show? Mm -hmm. Way back. You don't have any stars in the show. You just have a terrifically balanced company. And how did that come about? That was a big challenge in, in this show because we didn't want the people to appear as if they were acting. It was about being real. You sing those words that you sing because those are the only words you can sing. And so therefore, we really reached out. And this cast is made up of people that we auditioned in Austin, Texas, and Alabama, LA, Chicago, Nashville, as well as the New York theater community. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I, I think that I'm most proud of at this show is we have some people on this stage that are entertaining audiences that had never gone to a Broadway show, and now they're in a Broadway show. Well, I think that's good. How many in the company? 25? 26. 26. 26. How large he is the 26. 26. The one universal uh, answer from the audience that's seen this is that they can't believe the casting. It's like there's 15 stars up there of the future, mm -hmm. and most of them have never been on a Broadway stage before. And uh, Frank has a, uh, that came about with Frank. Well, that's He's got such an ear for that. Isabel, that's part of my ho whole thing. Um, for instance, the orchestrator of Jekyll and Hyde, Scarlet Pimpernel, and Civil War, mm -hmm. the musical directors of those shows, the casting of, of Civil War, uh, so much of the music team and sound designers of all of those shows are all new people to theater. They're, they were all people that, for whatever reason, went to other ways. They were in TV or they were in the movies. They were making records. And when my little theater journey started a few years ago, I really wanted to reach out and bring new talent into the theater. And I think we've taken that a step further with Civil War in the fact that so much of our cast is, is from places outside of the theater and now working in the theater. Besides the voices, there's a great freshness to it. Yeah. Well, and I think that and an authenticity, that. too, which you, know. you don't hear. Because if you're going to do a piece based on the Civil War and you have men of the South to hear a country-tinged voice, unlike a, a Broadway-trained voice, which we have as well, brings a huge other level of uh, residence. It's, well, it's so unique to the show. Makes it so special. This cast um, feels mm -hmm. uh, that it's more than just a job. Uh, we spoke to the company um, just last week after one of the performances, um, and uh, at part of the company meeting, uh, I think it was uh, 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 Cheryl Freeman, mm -hmm. uh, who is um, uh, our, our leading female, and she's an African American woman. And, and she said, I think her quote was, you know, it's my mission. I've been chosen. I've been chosen to do this show. And she feels that, that the message that the show has and the songs that she's been given to sing are, are more than just a job for her. And, you know, we, we count our blessings to have the talent that we do up there. I think it's very special now. You've got uh, new people in the show who've never been in on Broadway. You're attracting new audiences. I think that maybe there's a pattern there that uh, you can build on. You, new people in the theater and new people performing. Well, if we don't do that, what's the future? Right. We have to educate it. You know, new audiences, we have to get them excited, and we have to speak to them in a musical language that they understand. And the musical language that they hear, whether it's my kids 
or whatever, you know, is what they hear on the radio and TV. That's the popular music of the day. And I think if we speak to, especially young children, if Hootie and the Blowfish is singing a song that's based on the lyrics, the lyrics are based on a speech by Frederick Douglass. It's the song that will bring the kids in, and they'll listen to it because of who it is. And then along the way, they're going to learn something. And I think that's one of the neat things that's going on with this show, is the music brings them in, and it's accessible. And once they're there, they learn about a lot of important things about this country. Well, I think what's important is if you're dealing with the schools, that the, that the, the schools make this part of their education so they don't think they're just out there listening to Hootie and the Blowfish, right. but that, they are, that the teachers are able to tie in. I think that your, your idea of the, work, the study programs are, are, is perfect for, uh, if you can really develop that. I wonder about that. How, did, how much of the show was driven by economics? In other words, how many decisions were made because of dollars? Or did, did you really give Frank free hand and he just go ahead? Or did you at any point have to rein him in and say, wait a minute, the break even is going to be too high or this, this cast is, is too high? How much or of even the economic? price of the ticket, how do you, yeah. all well, of those? Well, well, there are always limitations budget-wise. And I think as the project evolved through the winter after we had done the uh, alley production, the project started growing and growing. And as each designer weighed in, Jerry would find, Jerry Zacks would find new great ideas, new toys physically in the physical production. And we did have one horrible weekend just before we went into rehearsals where I sat down with, with Wendy Orshan and, and Jeff Wilson, our general managers, and we did out in very fine detail the sum total of all the costs of all the decisions we had made over time. And I was forced to write a, a lengthy memo uh, to the guys, our, our authors and, and Jerry Zacks, simply saying that one by one, the snowflakes have landed on this hillside, and we now have accounted for every penny of our $7 million with no reserve for preview losses um, and an insufficient reserve for post-opening advertising. And so we had a, a heart-wrenching weekend in which we slashed back many of the ideas that we had all at various times said, this would be good, let's try it, but Jerry, we're running out of money. Do you really need this one? Yes, we really need this one. And it all kind of accumulated. And on that weekend, we kind of reinvented the physical production of the show more than anything else and removed some scenic effects, removed some... Um, we cut the submarine. Cut the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the cavalry. But we had initially had some fairly Horses, radically cut. different ideas. The band <laughs> was on stage. <laughs> we had the band on stage, for instance, uh, which we did have at the alley, and it was an important musical concern for Frank. And I think it was a, the hardest compromise that Frank made that was purely driven by budget was to bring them off of the stage and into the pit. Um, it simplified the physical production in ways that, that saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, ultimately. Um, and so we did have that rugged meeting, but I think <coughs> we tried to confine the process to always making rational decisions as we went. We pulled each other up short that one weekend and then went forward with it. And to the credit of this creative team and Jerry Zax's leadership in particular, and Frank's, Everybody just said, oops, okay, let's fix it. And, and they did all step in, and there were very tense and difficult days where the shops were about to start building X, Y, and Z, and we said, we got to re redraft a bunch of this. Um, so a, a lot of collaborative, creative people stepped up and, and really brought it forth in the way that it had to happen. And that goes to another point that I think is very important, which is the collaboration with us and the producers. In, in my short career, the two constants have been Scott, Miles, and Gary and Pace, 
and Pierre and Mary over there, the cassettes, have been my producers. And we have now been through the wars together. So we can work a little bit in shorthand. We now have been there, so we know how that collaborative process not just works, but there's going to be times where you have to cut back here or do more here. And I think, you know, I know, I know, I know Jack feels the same way. We've been very lucky because Pace and Pierre are such great producers and so artist-friendly that on a day-to-day -day basis, some of these hard decisions, you don't get angst about them because you know everybody's aiming for the same mountaintop. You know the support is there. And when an artist feels that, you're very comfortable. And the most an artist can ask for is for his or her voice to be heard. And the fact that these gentlemen here really gave us the chance and continue to do that is very special. And well, it doesn't get talked about. Well, yeah, I'm, well, I'm sure it's a two-way street, though. They wouldn't stick with you if, they, if it weren't that you were delivering exactly what they're looking for. Uh, I think that uh, what a tribute to all of you is that uh, you have remained together and you are repeating. I don't know how many shows that you bring in where the people are not talking to one another by <laughs> opening night <laughs> and you have to separate them at the opening night party. Different, uh, well, we've had uh, two shows together right. from Dead Scratch. Yeah. The, the Pimpernel was, that was really from, uh, from Dead Scratch and uh, we have a great working uh, relationship. Have you, uh, have you gone beyond your, uh, your capitalization? Are we, uh, is our first chore to earn back the uh, excess? Did we ask Pierre and, uh, to write more checks beyond the seven million? Well, we haven't that? had to yet. Well, I, th I think that uh, that speaks then very, very well yeah. for management as well. Howard yeah, Gary did say he wanted to see us after the show. <laughs> 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 we have some thoughts. <laughs> when you mentioned that it saved you hundreds of thousands of dollars between having the band on stage or, or the orchestra in the pit, and where did that saving come in? What was the what, what sorts of things did we did we cut? No, yeah. meant how explain the difference in the cost of a band on stage as opposed to in the pit? Oh, um, actually, it was multiple things. We had a platform that was going to be on the top of the uh, columns that, that constitute our set, and the band was going to be up there. Uh, the simple cost of creating it was moderate. It was maybe twenty five thousand dollars to build that bridge, but then all the ancillary things of the, the extra days it would take us in New Haven to put that bridge up there and the extra trucking to haul it back to New York. Um, the fact that once we had this platform there, we obstructed the lighting positions for the, a good chunk of the upstage section, uh, created new lighting demands that Paul Gallo had to get uh, possibly even uh, additional follow spot operators to, to get a throw into there, uh, and at the very least to have some trusses and additional Verilites that just add to bulk and money and additional uh, stage crew as well to operate. Um, it also we knew was going to create sound problems that were going to require some elaborate baffling because the live sound was now going to be generated right near the proscenium arch and go up into the flies. And so a ceiling and a different form of sound system was going to have to be created and that ceiling was going to draw in the smoke and fog that we use in the show the and compress effect. it around the band and so we had a ventilation system <laughs> and it's so theater. Well, it's a great letter he wrote and and this is just a small part of it it went on and on and on but after everyone read that thing from a professional point of view they said this guy was really right on <laughs> and the artists and the players and the creators and everybody well, Gary, you're that doesn't mean you're getting more money. <laughs> I think that's what's so important in the theater is to have people that know every part of, of right. theater. And you're lucky they listen to you. Well. I mean, it's so often you can say these things and you've got different kinds of producers who say, uh, but you well, that's a miracle. Uh, this show was such a happy experience. I mean, from Frank and Jerry 
through the rest of the company, it was a collaboration with a common goal. Um, and fiscal responsibility was a goal. Too. But, uh, that's where you all start out. You bring that knowledge to each other. Well, when you get to produce a Broadway show, you get to hire the very best people at what they do. And when you're smart and lucky, and you get people who are collaborators and will speak openly and freely, and say, well, this will hurt my sound design, but it'll help the show look better, it'll help this, it'll help that. Will you pitch in and help me with the sound issues? Well, sure, with a dialogue like that, everybody can just not defend their territory, but put on the best show they can. It's a good thing. Uh, Scott, I want to address uh, further with your marketing expertise. Uh, we all know that uh, you've outlived the, on, on Jekyll and Hyde, you've outlived the uh, four shows that uh, were nominated for Tony's, and uh, you're thriving there. And uh, with all respect uh, to the creators, I think that uh, we, it, the marketing certainly is responsible a great deal for that. And obviously, you've now gotten a f some sort of formula. <laughs> well, if there was a real formula, there'd be a lot more people doing what we do and a lot wealthier people uh, involved in this business. I, I don't think there's a, a formula that can be followed for every show. I think that we've, um, you know, the way the way it evolved on Jekyll and Hyde, quite frankly, was um, was basically uh, Gary and myself and and Frank and Frank's collaborators on on uh, Jekyll and Hyde standing in the back of the theater every night, seeing the audiences go absolutely crazy, uh, irrespective of what the critics said or what the Tony Awards said. Uh, we we saw the audiences really really going for the show. So we rolled up our sleeves and, as you said before, uh, wrote some checks and, and built a, a marketing campaign to address the needs of that show. And the needs of that show were maybe not necessarily the, uh, uh, what we commonly refer to as the Manhattan theater-going intelligentsia, but in fact the suburban audience and the tourist audience and the bridge and tunnel crowd, which is another common used term in our, in our uh, industry. And we aggressively produced and promoted uh, our marketing materials into those areas. We're in every tourist publication. We're in all the suburban newspapers for a show like Jekyll and Hyde. And uh, what we thought we would do is we would collaborate with our ad agency. And basically, we asked them to come to the table and create for us a television tool, just like Civil War ended up doing, to reach the masses. Not the Manhattan intelligentsia, but the people at home uh, on the weekends who come to the theater two or three times a year maximum, not ten times a year, maybe only once a year, and, and reach those people in New Jersey and in Westchester and on Long Island and in Philadelphia. And uh, we asked them to take basically all the Jekyll and Hyde films that were ever made, go to the video store, buy the videos, and edit together a storyboard for us of basically the scenes from our show, loosely based on our show, that we could see a video storyboard. We could see the impact of what it would look like on television when we took the film cameras into our theater. And they built for us a storyboard that we thought was dynamic and interesting using Frank's score as the base. And uh, like I said, we rolled up our sleeves and dipped into our pockets and produced a commercial that uh, has been on the air now for uh, over two years. And I don't think people are tired of it yet. Uh, it works. We put it on the air, and people buy tickets. Uh, we have not advertised in the New York Times for Jekyll and Hyde for uh, 20 months. Uh, we haven't run an ad in the Times because that's not our audience for that particular show. 
That's not the same formula for every show. But tell, how do you relate that to the Civil War now? Do you have well, the Civil War is still a baby. You know, mm -hmm. it's still uh, growing. Uh, there, uh, we need a foundation. I think of uh, uh, you know a few hundred, you know, at least a hundred thousand more people need to come through our doors before there is the critical mass to build the word of mouth, which is the most important advertising tool. And uh, so we're still feeling our way. We see. Uh, the same thing we saw at Jekyll and Hyde, and I'm sure the same thing Pierre saw at Pimpernel, is we see audiences really loving this show. Uh, we have a difficult title. Um, we've talked about it repeatedly. Uh, the show has the word war in the title, which is a turnoff uh, to women, which is a turnoff considering what's going on in the world today. Uh, in Kosovo, or, or you know, that's not something that you're drawn to, uh, you know, from an entertainment point of view, like Jekyll and Hyde is going to be gothic and romantic and entertaining, Scarlet Pimpernel is swashbuckling fun, the Civil War can be academic, you know, or it could be like spinach, you know? The perception. Uh, the perception, yeah, that it's, you know, really good for you. I'm, I will attest that it's not. Well, <laughs> well you know, I'm, and I'm happy to hear that. You know, I, I think Cameron McIntosh made a strategic decision uh, when he titled his show Miss Saigon instead of the Vietnam War. Um, so we took on a very broad subject, and, and by having that title, which we think... But it's a very recognizable title. It's a recognizable well. title, but it doesn't instantly connotate something that you would think is musically entertaining. We were going to call it For the Glory, and we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we'd already made the... Frank had already made the, the uh, Warner Brothers albums deals that was Civil War. So, uh, but anyway, uh, the, the marketing uh, happens up on the, uh, on the stage. Now, we've had a slow start with this. We've had a couple of not good reviews. We've had some excellent reviews. But I am personally convinced that this show, five years from now, will be on Broadway, that this will become a, sort of an icon, something fresh. The, the critics don't seem to quite be tuned into what we're trying to do. We never set out to do. Uh, you know, Oklahoma, we set out to do something that's very, very different, very, very special, and it takes a lot of nursing to get people caught up with, you know, and the people just absolutely roar over this. It's, uh, it's, uh... How uh, do you, how do you do that nursing? How much, how much money do you have to put in? Well, you nurse it, uh, we nurse it every day by, uh, word of mouth, and, uh, but until there, there, you have two, the time for word of mouth, well, to catch we on we what you we need. Uh, we're going to do that. If it requires more money, we're going to put it in. We mm -hmm. have a very 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 strong belief in this show. Well, I'll give you the basic ballpark. I know you're looking for some numbers. You're looking for some numbers. You know, so I'll tell numbers. you the numbers. <laughs> um, we we um, uh, when when Gary did his budget uh, for the show, we plugged in a number of roughly one million five hundred thousand dollars. Uh, for the advertising promotion marketing of the show from uh, the initial ad to put the show on sale basically through the Tony Awards roughly through the first week of June um, and that budget has been aggressively adhered to which is a large sum of money when you're talking about a seven million dollar budget you're talking about 20% of the budget being not on that stage you're talking about 20% of the budget being in the air or on the broad, you know, and and broadcast, or in you know, wrapping fish, things like that. So, what what we've done is we've aggressively used that budget. We've created the TV spot. 
earlier than most musicals may. You know, some, some musicals, the, the formula would be wait till you're a hit before you go and you spend six figures creating a television commercial and then airing it. Uh, that's not what we did. Uh, we went in basically in our second week of previews and filmed a television commercial at a movie studio um, with our actors and certainly with our set, but we moved it to a, a, a movie studio. And it's on the air now. Um, again, most shows would wait and see if they were established and look at the reviews and look at the notices. And that's not Pace's formula, and I don't think that's Pierre's formula. No, Our formula not. is to get out there and rely on no one but ourselves and the material on the stage. And uh, that's what we're doing, and, and we feel good about it. Um, you know, you do get caught up in the, uh, the race for the awards. And, and you, you have to be very careful not to overspend, uh, you know, or to, or to market heavily to a very small audience. Uh, mm -hmm. We're broadcasting. We're trying to build an audience. Uh, so um, that's where our money is going. Are you going out of town? I mean, certainly this is a show for uh, people from out of town to come in. And this is the time of year they're beginning to come to New York. Sure. Are you marketing out of town already? Um, well, absolutely. We're in all the airline magazines. Uh, the show is going to be going on tour next year. It has been announced on subscription in all those cities already, so they're already very aware of the show. Uh, we have a, a network of theaters that uh, congregate annually at our conference. We have a conference each year, and for the last two years, we've showcased Civil War. Uh, the presenters around the country know about it. The, the patrons, the theater patrons, have been receiving subscription material, so they know about the show. We have made a deal with uh, Comcast and we are doing an uh, hour-long uh, documentary that will be airing on June 13th uh, on the making of our musical. Uh, on opening night, we it's were... National. It's national. Not just in the tri-state area, but nationally. We, uh, on opening night, we um, had a live simulcast on a, a, a company called TV on the Web. And uh, for the entire evening, we were simulcast on the Internet. Um, uh, 60 Minutes has been uh, following Frank around for the last six weeks. Six weeks, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think many more million people than we, we could ever buy an ad mm -hmm. will see the feature that that runs on the creation of this show. Um, they they flew with our creative team to Gettysburg, and Sorry. and walked battlefields with uh, our composer and our authors about uh, the creation of this show. When you go into Broadway, do you already see your national tour in place? Is, is that taken into consideration right from the very beginning of what will tour and how you can tour it? Well, for us, clearly the answer is yes. Very mm -hmm. yeah. much. For me, they always have. yes. Because what has to be fed out there are these regional theaters, which is a big, big, huge business. And it's like a whale eating plankton. They need product. And they don't get a lot of that out of New York because you have to do family shows. Every show I've done, Will Rogers Follies' is family, Pimpernella's family, this is family. You can bring your kids, your grandmother, whoever. And, and that is what is, will, will, will breed huge success in theater. If you have something that's so critically dynamic here, it might be something you're going to never get on the road because it's, it's too cutting edge or whatever. So we kind of concentrate on And you forgot to mention that in the Newsweek magazine, 
two different issues. We have a full-page ad in the National Newsweek for uh, Civil War. And we're also following up with time and people yeah. nationally. Yeah. Um, but, but he's how being profitable is a tour going on the road? A profitable? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You don't go out, you don't, let me explain that, he may be modest, you, you won't take the tour out unless you know that it's going to be profitable, that's the way they're structured today, and Pace, having most of the venues, has a great control over that. Yeah. There, are, have, there are more theaters, that, 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 every week, the gross on the road is in excess of the gross on Broadway. Sometimes there's a narrow sight of things, but the real sales are around the country, not just on Broadway. It used to be, until Pace got very active in this, it used to be, correct me if I'm wrong, that people waited until it was a success on Broadway and then sent out around the country. Now they found out that... Well, Jekyll and Hyde toured before Broadway. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely a, a business that is, is contemplated simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, um, in fact, there are some set pieces that were in New Haven that are part of the touring set, which will go out in January. If it doesn't have that kind of touring potential, there's no point in doing it. You'll never make money on Broadway unless it's some kind of a fantastic uh, hit. You uh, want to go back to why you don't make money on Broadway? Well, because the cost of doing the shows is so excessive. In some cases, 10 and $12 million. And the arithmetic of capacity, eight shows a week, and you fill all of those seats, it still takes you an awful long, long, long time to ever recoup your money. Um, what is your the money is all out on the road. On the road, when you said you're, you're guaranteed, you uh, Pace, who owns theaters, they have, they have uh, uh, subscription houses all over the United States. So you'll get a, you, let's say your show is 275. They'll guarantee you 300,000. So right away you're not gonna lose. Uh, but you're all in there at 60% and 70% and so on and so on. And you get into these big houses, you know, you can make a million dollars a week. You can't do that in Broadway. And, and you can keep repeating it over a two and three and four year period of touring. And that's before you go to Europe. So all the money's out there. And that's Is why that true, that yeah, I think you're going to have people, everybody rushing into the theater at, uh, being producers when you tell them they can make a million dollars a week. <laughs> well, they can. They, they can. I've been through that. So, I, mean, I mean, Will Rogers' Follies won, what, seven uh, uh, Tony Awards for the, uh, the best musical and all that. And we, uh, we broke even after sitting here for two and a half years. Went out on the road, and we did make a million dollars a week in certain places on the road. So I, I speak firsthand from that. I think Jekyll and Hyde is, is even bigger. Jekyll and Hyde, of course, had paid off by the time it got to Broadway, and it's still running. And the biggest one on the road is going to be the Civil War. I'll put it against any show on Broadway when that thing goes out on the road, because that's a people's show. Can you take advantage of, the Jack, uh, of, of your personal following, the, the, the Jackies? Are there going to be civvies, or are there going to be something? <laughs> there, there are civvies. And, and, and one of the things we have learned very early on in the Civil War, like Jekyll and Hyde and Scarlet Pimpernel, we have an enormous amount of repeat business. We've only mm-hmm. been running a little while, and you know, I'm back there, and I talk to the people a lot at night, and it's very often, I've, this is my sixth time, this is my seventh time. And you know, with Jekyll and Hyde, we have people have seen it over a hundred times. That's that's the truth. We had it in New Haven. In three playing weeks in New Haven, we had people coming back closing weekend saying, it's my fourth time, I brought my mother this time. It's amazing the passion his music engenders. I I gotta tell you though, because I think Scott is being a little modest here. Intellectually, I mean, he's the best at this stuff. I always call him the Michael Jordan of marketing. But I think Mm -hmm. what makes Scott unique 
in marketing is not just all the intellectual knowledge, it's the feel for the people. He has that finger on the pulse of the people, and he knows how to communicate with them. We're in the communications business, and one of the things that Pierre's whole career has been about has been communicating to a mass amount of people. And these guys know that, and I think some of that is visceral, not just intellectual. Well, I think that, that bring it to a point, how did everybody get to where they are now? Because I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, you had your roots in the circus, did you not? <laughs> Really <laughs> 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 Here's some <laughs> You know too much, right? right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I used to wear big but, shoes. But, uh, yeah, I started in the. Um, I went right out of graduate school to Ringling Brothers, and I was in the in the marketing department there for a few years before I joined Pace. So yeah, I got my roots. <laughs> my, my my roots were in uh, driving the family audience. We were actively on the sides of milk cartons, and we were doing coloring contests and all kinds of things. And, and I learned a lot. I really did. I think uh, um, we apply so many of those tools that I learned early on to promoting and marketing Broadway, both on the road and here in New York. And a lot of what we do now is, is looked at as not being so radical or, uh, or different. It's now becoming more and more commonplace to promote and market the way we do. Um, like I said, the, the New York Times isn't even a tool that we use at all for a show like Jekyll and Hyde. I will use it for the Civil War. I mean, each property is, is looked at differently. Um, but uh, it, it, the thing is that, that marketing of a show really is not formulamatic. Uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, Jekyll and Hyde has been running now in excess of two years on Broadway and the tour that preceded it. There isn't, uh, a, we have a, a marketing meeting that's attended by a dozen people every week since six months before it opened on Broadway. And no one misses that meeting. And we talk about the media buys and the promotions and the in-store displays and the appearances that we're going to make. Uh, we had a Civil War marketing meeting yesterday. How many people were in the room? 18. 18, 18 20 people. Mm -hmm. The record company is in the room. Uh, our grassroots marketing people are in the room, the ad agencies in the room, the composers in the room, the producers are in the room. And we discuss is, is, is and Is that typical of, of shows today? Or it's typical of the way we produce shows. Yeah. I think that many producers rely 100% on their ad agent mm -hmm. uh, and give them very little direction other than a budget. Uh, you know, but I think that in order to, to treat this as a business, uh, if you don't keep your finger, as you say, on the pulse of the people and, and evolve and see, well, this marketing tool is working and this one isn't working, so let's put more money in behind this, or we have a soft weekend coming up July 4th, so we must do a promotion. If you ever stop doing that, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to start losing money. Mm -hmm. And once you sort of get on that negative track, there's no turning, around, turning it around. When you have 18 or 20 people in a room and they're all throwing out ideas, Somebody has to decide what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And, what, and usually, uh, the committee doesn't work. How does <laughs> well, they may think they're on a committee. <laughs> no, we, we have an agenda, and we go through the agenda, and, and ultimately, at least from the marketing point of view on the shows we do, I make the decision. But, but everybody gets their you know, turn at the pedestal to put their point forward. Let me pick up what, what I started with you. Jack, how did everybody get to where they are? Now, Jack, give us something about your background. Everybody knows you're 
lyricist, a composer, a creator, professional bowler. Professional. That's right. Yes, yeah. with, a, with a very high score. Um, <laughs> actually, you know, I had I lived in in Los Angeles for 13 years. I grew up in New York. Lived in Los Angeles 13 years. Came back here in '91. Had about a thousand lunches with people. You know, oh, you should see this guy. You should see this guy. You should see. And somebody then. Uh, Somebody mentioned to me, you should meet with this composer. He's looking for lyricists. You know, just don't tell him you write music. I said, okay. So we went to lunch, and he was my thousandth lunch. And he said... Uh, Chinese. Chinese, that's right. <laughs> it was good, too. Who bought the lunch? <laughs> actually, actually, he bought Eventually, the lunch. Eventually, you did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and we, we, he, gave me, he gave me four songs, a tape of four songs. He said, try these songs. And I, and I wrote them in a, in a week. I don't know how good they are, I don't know how bad they are. Two of them made it to a record. So he brought it back, and, he, and I think he said, uh, oh, good, this guy can keep up. All right. So uh, we just had a good working relationship. We seemed to, you know, it seemed to, to be... It, you know what it was? It was I could be bad in front of him right away. I think unless you can be, unless you can be, you're not afraid to be bad with your collaborator, you'll never be good. I mean, you know, you... you you have to be able to sit there and, and say this line, and as it's coming out of your mouth, say, this is the stupidest <laughs> line anyone has ever said. But you say it anyway, and then you realize it and say, no, 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 that won't work. So, and I think that the, we had that, if I'm not mistaken, I'll, I think that we have that ability to be able to just be free and just, you know, do, do what you can do. And so uh, he brought me on board with this project, and uh, I met all of these wonderful people. And that, you know, this is my first time on Broadway. And the thing that I have found, I've done theater things, little regional things and so on. And that's always a very collegial sort of undertaking, usually. Uh, Broadway, I've heard these horror stories, you know, just horror stories. Uh, they're true, but no, no, no. Actually, they're <laughs> all true. You read them. <laughs> well, no, the thing that I learned about it is that it's a lot like what they used to say about Congress. It's the art of the possible. You know, you have X amount of dollars, you have this, you have that, you have that. And, uh, and if everybody's working towards the same thing, uh, that's a good thing. When everybody has their own private agendas, that's how, that's how shows get torpedoed, I think. Because everybody's trying, you know, they have, they have this sort of very parochial view of the show, as opposed to the show. And uh, I think I've been blessed with, with all of the people. Here. I really, we can't, I, I've never heard a group together, everybody, uh, a love fest, this far into a production. I think it's a, a tribute to all of you. Well, he has incriminating photos. On <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, but uh, uh, Scott wrote the music and I did the lyrics. <laughs> These guys little know anything they You're want. Funny. Jerry actually directed it. <laughs> yeah, Jerry's our director. Uh, uh, tell us, uh, how did Frank, how did you get, Frank Wildhorn just didn't arrive. <laughs> and, uh, with, tell us what happened and how did you get to be able to get on Broadway three shows ago? Wow. It's amazing because, you know, three and a half short years ago, I guess, you know, so many of these doors were, were closed and they were shut tight to me. And I'm not doing anything different than I did before. Uh, I was born in Harlem, I grew up in New York and then Florida, and then I lived out in, in Los Angeles in the 80s. I was a a writer, a composer of, of pop music from Whitney Houston to Molly Hatchett, and, but my, my love was always in theater. And um, the old um, actor John Hausman was the artistic director of uh, USC when I was at USC. And when I was there, he said to me, 
go for it. You know, you have something and you should go for it. And bring popular music to the theater. He would always say, do that. That's a good thing. Keep doing that. And, and even when he passed away, that was always something that, that stayed with me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's surrounding yourself with the best people you can, you know, making a home for yourself, which these gentlemen have done for me, uh, not taking no for an answer, following your heart, being true to yourself, you know, and you look at the people and you see the way the people respond to the music and that gives you the strength and you go on. Jekyll and Hyde was 17 years of my life from the time I thought up Jekyll and Hyde to, to we got here. Scarlet Pimpernel was a seven or eight year journey and this has been a three, four year journey. So hopefully then, you know. Overnight, overnight. Uh, yeah, overnight. <laughs> so, it, no, but it's funny because, you know, all of a sudden there's this, all this stuff. Wait, did you have any, any anything less than success before? Uh, Jekyll and Hyde was my first experience first. in the theater. And it was a bunch of kids who had no idea what we were doing, but we just went for it and, and look at Let's happened. hope you stay at 100%. That's great. <laughs> now, Gary, uh, you've, uh, I know you've had, uh, people would deny it, but you have had 30 years of experience on Broadway. Uh, if someone wanted to do what you're doing, if someone wanted to do what you're doing, if they were wise enough or foolish enough, uh, how, what would you tell them to do? If they wanted to become the executive producer and, uh, of a Broadway well, operation. Just dig on in, I think. For me, the path was to, to come up through uh, initially working in a box office off-Broadway, but then uh, company managing and then working in general management. Uh, which got me the perspective from the inside of the business, which ultimately for commercial theater, that's where you have to live and breathe is inside the business. Uh, the great opportunity for me was that my first job essentially was on Godspell as apprentice company manager. Um, and, and I learned my craft through the 12 simultaneous productions we had going of that. Um, and I worked for free that first summer because they were putting it together on a shoestring. And, and instead of the $40 a week I could have had that summer, they gave me a point of the show. So in three years, I had this great beach house. And anyway, I think there's an aspect of producing that is uh, quintessentially management. And, and I think that's an imperative thing. Um, I spent 17 years with Marvin Krauss Associates. Uh, Marvin produced and general managed throughout the 70s and 80s, and is still active now, but we were one of the really active offices then. And I had wonderful daily contact with Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse and so many of the strong, great people, Arthur Lawrence and Jerry Herman. And getting to work on shows like Dreamgirls and La Cage au Fall, the passion that I have for just loving musical theater and loving seeing a musical show, to stand in the back of a house, starting from Godspell and forward, even as a manager who had no creative input whatsoever, to know that I had been part of an experience that makes an audience go nuts and go out of the theater with the adrenaline rushing is just the greatest high. And, and it's transcendently so when it's a show like The Civil War where I stand there as a fan. I love the show and I stand there and have a great time. So I think, I know Martha Graham said to people about going into dance, if, if a young person would say, should I become a dancer? She said, absolutely not. If you can even form the question in your mind, you haven't got it. You're, you're not trapped enough in that decision. You have to have to have it. I think one of the things that, that you, uh, you brought out in earlier is that you have a, a knowledge of all the aspects of the business. It isn't that you just know numbers, uh, that you, you have to know something about the technical aspects. You have to know something about performance. I think that, that sensitivity that you can bring to production is probably why you are where you are today. 
that you have an overall view. And a great collaborator with the artists. Gary's the one who we work with on a day-to-day about the show. And he is such a great guy that you want to hang out with him. And that's, again, that makes you feel very comfortable. It makes you want to work harder. I think this eventually translates to the stage. It really does. All right, Norman, your history. I know uh, a little bit about your background. Well, I've touched a couple other venues. A lot of the gentlemen over here, right. Gary actually was someone you ask about how to get into the theater. And when I was still in college, I had uh, naivete can go a long way. Don't be afraid to knock on doors. And one of the people I wrote to was Marvin Krauss. And Gary met me and answered some questions for me and uh, whether or to pursue <coughs> graduate education, et cetera. But, it's really, it's just finding an opportunity and going out to do it. I began my career in Baltimore, which was one of the major pre-Broadway theaters. So I had, early on in my career, the opportunity to work on many shows prior to Broadway and meet a lot of the people who ultimately I would form professional relationships with. But I started out there when I was a teenager as an usher, so I got bitten by the bug there. And uh, I, I think in my career, I'm somewhat, I've been on both sides of the footlights. I've worked in presenting organizations in-house. I've been with producers as a publicist. I've toured. I've been on Broadway. I've been in other countries. And so I have a f- fairly good perspective, I think, on, on various aspects. So now it, it, it keeps me in good stead on something like Civil War because I can listen to the Pace presenters and sympathize with the marketing director in Cleveland when they need materials and know when I was on that end of the phone, if I had a recalcitrant press agent and didn't cooperate how I didn't like it, and I have an obligation now to, to assist. And I, I see myself as a facilitator, whether it's with the journalists as a publicist. I don't see it as an antagonistic relationship. I'm, I'm, an, ad, I'm an ally, not an adversary. I'm there to help them to storyboard a story if it's a TV station, to help a journalist hone into what he or she wants. But I'm ultimately there to serve the producer, too. And I'm, I'm there to give, you know, make sure that Frank's work is seen and heard and appreciated by as many people. And it's a very much a collaborative relationship. What kind of receptivity are you having with the uh, media now in placing people uh, on behalf of the Civil War? It's a it's crunch a, time for it's a, a crunch time, but it's also it's a gradual cultivation of persistence. And one thing in terms of my mentoring around the same time I met Gary, way back when, I remember meeting Jerry Schoenfeld, and it was around the time Michael Bennett uh, was producing uh, was 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 writing Ballroom, and he said words that actually I still remember. It was like persistence and tenacity, pay off. Just don't be a pain in the ass. And uh, <laughs> and you know in this job no, or I don't know, or I'll get back to you, is what you hear before yes. And I mean, to work with something like um, the New York Times to finally get a profile, not so much of Frank Wadler and who he is and what he is, but his music, to hear that was about four or five months of constant phoning, writing, cultivation, slow, slowly working with their apprehensions, working through step by step. And things take an awful lot of time, but you do have to be persistent. There is a route to getting to yes. It's a long word, (laughs) sometimes. Uh, Pierre, now we're not going to have you recite your whole (laughs) career here, because we don't have that much time. No equal time. But I think think what would be great to hear from you is the the difference between all the television shows that you've done and now the excitement I I know very well that you you generate from, that is generated from Broadway. Well, I have done just about everything. I was an agent with MCA, and then I started a record label from Dead Scratch that became a big, big major record label, and I sold that. Then uh, I went into television, I went to the Record Academy, and started the Grammy Awards. 
and uh, 1971, and I've been doing, next year's my 30th anniversary. So I've been in a lot of parts, I've done a six weekly series and all kinds of things, but the thing I always really wanted to do was to get to Broadway. And uh, uh, at that time, in 1991 or 92, whenever it was, all of the big hits were from London. And I said, there's an opportunity here to fight that British invasion. And that's where the Will Rogers idea came from. And I went bouncing around looking for his family, and I made a deal with all of the, the living kids. And uh, there we were, and it was very, very successful. So I got the, uh, I got the, uh, I, the, the next one I tried, I couldn't get off the ground, the Hank Williams story, because down there in Nashville, they said, well, don't worry about good old Hank. Uh, we don't want to sign no contract. You don't have to worry about us. You just shake him. <laughs> well, we do, you know. And I, I go to all this trouble with the script. I couldn't get that done. Now, into my life, uh, there were several ideas that came. Once you produce your Tony Award-winning uh, uh, Broadway producer, you get a lot of ideas there. And when I saw this idea, I said, that is the idea. The, the Civil War and the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I just, I just attacked that. And... Uh, uh, so, and I, and I love Robert. There's one thing about this business. If you're in television, if you're in motion pictures and all of these things that, that, that I have done, there is one single entity that is much more exciting than all of them put together from a producer's point of view, and that is Broadway. You see what you get, you sing for your supper, it's all to be discovered, it could close the second night, it could be a hit for 15 years, it moves people from here to there, from, from sadness to happiness or laughter to tears or whatever, and you're there to see it happen. It's so disjointed in these other functions. You have one part of your crew's over here, another one's in Chicago, and then somebody comes together and they edit it all together, and it's a different business. Here, the joy of watching the collaborators I mean, we've been to all these meetings, and the actors, and, and you, you see, when you're there opening night, you just, you're just flying. You're just flying with the excitement. And, it, it, you know, it can work both ways, but at the same time, that's, it's, there's no business like it. It's the granddaddy of it all. Broadway is note. a <laughs> What? I couldn't agree with you more. You know how I feel about live theater and being part of it. And I think that what you said has summed up that whole feeling of how the theater is different from any other entertainment medium. I'm so glad that it is, too. I have to stop this program right now because once more we do not have enough time to get all the information and get all the wonderful, wonderful knowledge that this panel has. It's, this has been an American Theater Wing seminar on working in the theater, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The American Theater Wing is an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community with the goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, like Introduction to Broadway, which began seven years ago, and has enabled more than 75,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, for many of them the very first time. And through our newest program, Theater in Schools, theater professionals like these and our seminar panels go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have our hospital program, 
which dates back to World War II and our legendary stage door canteens. Today's version of the program utilizes talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and aid centers in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater itself. We are proud of the work we do and happy for that wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. And we are grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. I want to thank this wonderful panel, the production team of the exciting new Broadway show, The Civil War, that has given us so much of their time and knowledge this morning. And I want to thank Roy Sumlio, who is president of the American Theatre Wing, for his very able, kind, and knowledgeable expertise in bringing out what it is to produce a Broadway show, absolutely from option to opening. Thank you very much for being here. <laughs>